Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And to those of you living in the U.S., happy 4th of July. Hopefully you uh, are having a great 4th of July weekend with friends and family. I wish you all the best. And today, I'm really pleased to bring to you, this is a special treat, Dr. Greg Lehman. He is both a physiotherapist and chiropractor from Canada. And prior to his clinical career, he was fortunate enough to receive a Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council graduate scholarship that permitted him to be one of only two yearly students to train with Professor Stuart McGill in his Occupational Biomechanics Laboratory, publishing more than 20 peer-reviewed papers in the manual therapy and exercise biomechanics field. He was an assistant professor at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, teaching a graduate-level course in spine biomechanics and instrumentation, as well as conducting more than 20 research experiments while supervising more than 50 students. He has lectured on a number of topics on reconciling treatment biomechanics with pain science, running injuries, golf biomechanics, occupational low back pain injuries, and therapeutic neuroscience. His clinical musings can be seen on MedBridge and various web-based podcasts, and he is currently an instructor with the runningclinic.ca and with Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science. While he does have a very strong biomechanics background, he was introduced to the field of neuroscience and the importance of psychosocial risk factors in pain and injury management almost two decades ago. And he believes successful injury management and prevention can use simple techniques that still address the multifactorial and complex nature of musculoskeletal disorders. He is very active on social media, so you can find him on Twitter or on Facebook, so be sure to do that. All of the links for his website and for his social media can be found over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com in the show notes, so just head on over there. Click on the show notes and you will be able to go directly to all of Dr. Lehman's uh, social media and websites. Okay, so what did we talk about in today's podcast? Before we get to it, I'll give you a little preview. Uh, We talk about why explaining pain leads to better treatment outcomes, the case for and against repeated spinal flexion. We talk about glute activation or inhibition, and does it affect pain? Greg is in the midst of writing a blog post about this. Functional training and the carryover effect, and a lot more. Greg has so much to share and so much to offer, and I know I got a lot out of this podcast, and I hope you guys do as well. And before we get to the podcast, I just want to thank audible.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So if you want a free month's trial and a free download, go to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart, and you can choose from over 180,000 titles. Um, I am in the midst, I just finished a great book called The Girl Girl in the Ice. Sorry, it's not anything PT related, but it was really, really good. Sometimes you just need something light and fun and fresh to read. I mean, it's a murder mystery, so I don't know how fun it was, but it was definitely a much-needed break. Anyway, head on over again. That link is audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. Get yourself a free month and a free book, uh, or free download, I should say. All right, so with all of that said, let's get to the interview. Here is Dr. Greg Lehman. Hey, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you on. 
Thanks for having me. And just so everybody knows, we're recording this. I normally do not sound this low. I guess this baritone, if you will, but I don't know if I have like a cold or allergies or what. So um, luckily, I have Greg on the podcast, and so hopefully he'll be doing most of the talking. So anyway, Greg, thanks for coming on. And if you could just so, for people who maybe don't know who you are, um, if you could just talk, give a little bit about yourself before we get going. Sure. Uh, well, my name's Greg Lehman. I'm a physiotherapist and a, a chiropractor out of Toronto, Canada. I'm uh, primarily primarily a clinician, um, but I was a researcher for a long time, doing a, a master's in biomechanics a long time ago, and then teaching and researching at the chiropractic college. And now I I, I treat patients and I travel around giving a, a course on biomechanics and pain science about how um, the bio, uh, if it's simplified, can fit very well into a psychosocial uh, practice. So really working on all three with our patients in pain and athletes. Right. And I saw Greg give a talk at the San Diego Pain Summit earlier this year, and it was really great. So if you have the opportunity uh, to see Greg teach, to go to his full weekend course, I mean, I only saw you spoke for, what, an hour, hour and a half? Not even. Yeah, Not an even. hour. It, so if you have the opportunity to go and see him for a full weekend, I highly, highly recommend it because you will certainly learn a lot. And I feel like with the way you teach, it's fun. It's not boring. It keeps people interested. I think that's safe to say. You probably admit that. Um, and Well, I don't get bored either. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's really you're boring. bored of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if you're bored of yourself, then you probably shouldn't be teaching. Um, but I feel like it really lends itself to, like you said, sort of bridging that gap between the bio, the psycho and the social part of the biopsychosocial approach. I think a lot of people, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are, you get some people who's in a strictly biomedical camp and, and people, I don't know many people who are in a strictly pain science camp. But I think there's a lot of miscommunication amongst clinicians as to how to best integrate the bio into the psychosocial. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then I think clinicians and people get frustrated. I've given talks a few years ago where we would challenge a lot of the biomechanical tenets that we have. And the questions and the frustrations later are always, well, what the hell do I do then? You know, if if we can't do these these things, how do we practice, or how do you fit pain science into what you do? So um, that's what we hope. That's what I try to hope to help with. And so, let's say, what are some of the common frustrations, or are there common questions that people have for you after taking your course, or maybe after reading some of the things that you blog about or that that you uh, express online? What are some common things that people say that people ask uh well commonly what i hear which which i really like to hear is and i I do it in the intro it's the idea that you know it's okay to be simple like i think we try to complicate things too much especially the biomechanics and the physical interventions you know we're a smart profession 
And so we try to challenge ourselves and we don't really need to sometimes. You know, it's just sort of simple physical interventions are often very effective. And it doesn't have to always be about this joint is out of position and there's a lateral tilt here and then this muscle isn't firing at the right firing pattern and then make up this cascade of delicacy where we get into this incredibly complex regional interdependence. Uh, and we don't really need to do that. You know, sometimes we can just simplify the bio. And so I, the best thing after the course is people will often say, you know, like I was going this route, but I wasn't sure. And now they feel more comfortable doing that. It's like a support group for simpletons. That's a perfect example where it's not the pain science that challenges the biomechanics. It's the biomechanics that challenges the biomechanics. So that premise that uh, an SI joint or the ilium is flared or upslipped or rotated that is biome biomechanically flawed. If you know the biomechanics well, then that challenges all of that stuff, and you can just simplify it. And all you end up doing is, if you want to manipulate the spine, then you can go ahead and manipulate the spine if you have some sort of other clinical indication. But you don't need, the clinical indication doesn't have to be, well, you have altered arthrokinematics, because that's just bullshit. Like, that is just completely un unsupported. You know, you have to go some other global route. It hurts, so maybe I'll crack their back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you want to. Or you just do something completely different. You don't have to be so technical. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I I always had, you know, you kind of take these courses and it's a, you know, and I, f I forget what the terminology was. It was so like an ERF left or a FRS this way and... Yeah, and these are all positional or movement faults, and they're not true. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. You can't reliably detect them, and they don't occur. Like the SI joint, there's these papers by a guy named Kibsgaard, and Bleeming's on it, and they put copper balls into the uh, the different joint surfaces there and have them do a gelaze or a kinetic test, you know, the stork test where you lift your leg up, and the joint moves 0.5 degrees. And translations are random. You don't feel that stuff. Or at every single joint, if you pull it to the left, it might go three and a half degrees. If you pull it to the right, it might go one degree. That's without any muscles or ligaments in place. That's just the architecture of a joint. So it's naturally asymmetrical. So no one can say something's out of place or shifted or wrong. It's just they have no foundation for that. And that's awesome because then it just simplifies things. Yeah, yeah. I feel like kind of after coming to that realization that if if you wanted to do a manipulation with, you know, all things pointing in that direction, it's like you don't have to be so – I don't want to say you don't have to be so specific, but it's like it's – I just feel like – you don't have to, your, your hand position, where you think your hand position is, may not be where oh, it has to be. Does that make sense? It's, no, and that's not, a, that's, your thought is right and it's supported. Like, we know that you can't be specific when, with manipulation. And we know, based on another few other physiological pr principles, the idea that the force, like your, the line of drive of your hand contact, that doesn't even go into the joint often. It gets dissipated through the soft tissue based on a, a number of properties which we won't get into. And so it's that idea that the technical mastery is less important. 
there is skill in manipulation and soft tissue work, but it probably has more to do with your interaction and that the patient feels comfortable and then how you respond to them rather than you being a good robot who knows lines of drives and the biomechanics that is, that isn't what's valuable. And that, that completely isn't supported in all the research that we have, you know, that there's a better reasons to decide to manipulate than joint position or joint palpation and motion palpation. Right. Yeah. Like if, so for instance, if someone comes in and, and you want to manipulate them, but they're tentative about it or they're, they say, well, I've had it and it never helps or, you know, they sort of have a mindset about manipulation that it's not going to do anything for them. Is that the person that you want to be manipulating? Uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's any treatment that ever has to occur. And it's actually a, a neat big question for therapy that I always, that I'd like to see addressed more. Is there ever a treatment that is absolutely necessary for a specific condition? Or are there a number of things that can be helpful? And I tend to believe that there's more a number of things. I have my biases, but um, I think most things aren't that specific. Yeah, but, I I, so. I agree. I mean, I think there has to be multiple ways to to look at uh, a, a patient and to look at a patient's issue. Because if if not, then like you said, we would all kind of be little robots just going by, well, this is what I feel, which we know is not the most reliable thing in the world. This is what the person's saying. This is how they're presenting. So this is what I'm going to do. Does that not take out all of your differential diagnosis and all of your critical thinking skills? Well, I mean, um, I think you still need me to need to be a good clinician in order to rule out all sinister pathology and rule out well red flags. I know that's hard to do, but also rule out tissue damage that might need fixing. But I. I mean, a guy named Deo said that decades ago. You know, you rule out those type of things plus some uh, psychological concerns, and then you can treat very conservatively in an, excuse me, a number of different ways. Uh, and and we know that our special tests. You know, there's great um, literature reviews by Mike Ryman at a Duke, I think, is where Mike is, and Eric Hedges, uh, and they have a textbook out that says, you know, our special tests aren't so special, right? So. So we're not even very good at figuring out the structure, and we don't need to, I would say. And so when you're – okay, so let's say you have someone, uh, a patient comes to you with, you know, let's just say low back pain. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of PTs – a lot of uh, low back pain is a huge issue. So someone comes to you for low back pain. You've ruled out all of the red flags. You've – you know, done your due diligence. And I don't know, in Canada, do you have direct access in Canada? Yeah. Do people come directly to you? Okay, so someone's come directly to you. You're the first line of uh, care. So if someone comes to you with acute onset of low back pain, started two weeks ago, they're, you know, kind of restricted in movement in all different ways, fearful, uh, pain is fairly high, what are some things that you're going to do right away uh, with this patient? So I've already ruled out specific you've, stuff. Yeah, you've already, like, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and so once you do that, it's great. Then then you can start treating any way you like. And my my number one way for people like that with the acute stuff is is the reassurance through knowledge, right? And why we explain the pain that they feel. And the biggest thing with low back pain is they need to understand that although it can hurt an incredible amount, but the, that doesn't mean that there's any damage or a lot of damage at, at, at all that the spine itself is like this incredible car alarm where it can just be blaring if someone just swipes it or if the ground trembles and there's nothing wrong with the car. You know, so I, I go right into education with low back pain. And then I, I don't, I'm not even too worried about getting them super active right away. I, they can take a break. It's okay. But uh, I do want to encourage them to, get to, to, to getting back to doing the things that are important. So if, if they tell me that they're afraid to do a number of things that they like doing and their meaningful activities, those are, that's my go-to intervention is to convince them that they can start doing those things again. And then, you know, I sort of follow like the calm stuff down, build stuff back up approach, you know, so that's sort of the build stuff back up. I mean, the education is to calm it down and then the build stuff back up is like, what do you want to do? Okay, let, let's start doing those things again. And then, and then I can start doing it if I like some, some manual therapy. If I if I want wanted to just just to, to desensitize things, and I, and I do manipulation and soft tissue or active release and and all all of those things. But really, it's it's I'm just I'm just trying to get them moving again, and and so most of my care is pretty active in the manual therapy. Uh, and then the last thing, if I had to be more specific, would be what hurts. Like what type of movement hurts? Okay, can we find a way that you can start moving that way without it hurting? <laughs> that's, that. that's yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty simple to me. And you're welcome. <laughs> yes, very simple. Um, and you know, something that we spoke about before we went on was um, speaking of low back pain. Uh, when we were kind of talking talking about what we wanted to do for this podcast um we're sort of talking about maybe some topics that have been in the news or or along social media and one of them was um the sit-up situation so how you know even through the military they're sort of banning sit-ups because uh causes low back pain yeah articles everywhere wall street journal uh all over the internet so what are your thoughts on that good bad or indifferent um, I, I'm sure indifferent is not one of them, but I threw it out there just in case. Uh, uh, both good and maybe bad. Uh, and the good would be, I, th- I think both in the Canadian and the American military, they use the sit-up as sort of a, a test for performance to, uh, to see the readiness to, for, to, or preparedness for fit- fitness test. Uh, and it's not, a sit-up isn't good for that. You know, it's like you wouldn't have fire. We, we, we wouldn't care how many sit-ups a firefighter could do or a police officer. It's just it's just not a good surrogate test for, for their function, for the task that they have to do. Um, so it's probably better that they're shifting. And I think they're doing like sandbag lifts or squats. And that makes more sense because it mimics more of the demands that they have to do. So it's good for that. And then the idea that a sit-up or it, it's the repeated spinal flexion, creates injuries that 
that that to me, we might be on a little bit more of a, a shaky ground in terms of the evidence. And and we can go through it. It's it's long and not too long, but it's it's a bit complicated. Uh, and uh, right now, I think the jury's still out. Would be is repeated spinal flexion really that much of a contributor to low back injury? And and there's a lot of great biomechanists that I incredibly respect that would uh, um, suggest that it is. And then there's a lot of great clinicians and biomechanists that would say it's not such a problem. So um, we can we can go through the literature if you like because it's it's a it's a I think it's a huge uh, debate in our profession. Yeah, let's let's go through some of the literature if we can, um, and then people can kind of okay. make up their minds which which way you know good or bad. Yeah. So I give like a lecture on like the pros and cons, and uh, traditionally the the case against minimizing repeated flexion would be that if you just take a, a spine or a motion segment, so the vertebra on the disc in between and you crush it like you take it out of the body and usually they do this with an animal model but that's not a problem that that's still relevant to humans and you crush it when it's in neutral the vertebral end plate will fracture the disc doesn't fracture it's really like the spine is really strong and neutral if you flex the spine and crush it um it, it will it'll fracture even earlier but still the in in most studies the disc won't herniate, and, and then and then this was Stuart McGill's work and Jack Callahan's work back in the late '90s and early 2000s, and they did a lot of great work after that. They said, "Well, how do we get the disc to herniate?" And what they did is they took the motion segment, so um, uh, they would use the like porcine spines, and other groups would use ovine, and like, and they would they would just repeat flex it back and forth for thousands of cycles, like up to 86,000 cycles with just a little bit of compression. Um, and then the disc would herniate. It would, the nuclear material would start to work its way out the back of the disc and the annulus fibrosis would start to delaminate and you would get disc herniation. And other people have repeated that. So now we have this biomechanical mechanism for the injury. So that's one like leg of the stool. So does, does that all make sense? So that that's one of the cases for avoiding that flexion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they also did great work going on uh, later to show well some people probably could handle more repeated flexion because the shape of their discs would allow them to handle it. So they did great work to to mitigate that risk. Um, and then they did biomechanical or different people did biomechanical models showing if you flex the spine and it's loaded, there's more anterior shear. So the forces on the spine are greater too. So there's sort of the second leg of the stool. And the third of leg of the stool is where it's more contentious to me. And that's the idea that there's epidemiological support where repeated spinal flexion leads to injuries. And in the military, I, uh, there's nothing published, but perhaps maybe they've collected data. I don't, I don't know that shows that sit-ups are related. I know in the paper that they cited that that actually paper doesn't support it, but maybe they have something unpublished or, uh, you know, you know, like in, in the workplace, it's very contentious. Like people who flex their back a lot and lift, they aren't, uh, flexion itself isn't more related to injury. It's a bit of a surprise. It's just how much you lift. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the case against spinal flexion.
right? There's definitely this injury mechanism in, in a cadaver spine. Okay, so I believe that, right? That I love that research. I, uh, you know, I, I, I was around when they did it. it. It really challenged me, and I was someone who had said we should avoid doing sit-ups. However, as my, as my career went on, I'd be like, you know, does that really make sense? And so, because I would be confronted with all of the sports and all of the activities of daily living where we have repeated spinal flexion. Think of people that do yoga. Think of all these people that do sit-ups every day. Think of uh, rowers, right? Cyclists, cross-country skiers, golfers. Like when you do the golf swing, your spine flexes 48%, right? That's a huge amount. And in the study that had repeated spinal flexion, you know how much they flex the spine? 35% of its max. Wow. That's it. That's nothing. That's all that they did. And that created the proposed injury. So we have, so I'm confronted with this proposed injury mechanism, right, of repeated spinal flexion with the reality of all of these millions of people doing that proposed injury mechanism every day, right? Every day. Like if you are a cross country skier in Norway and Scandinavia, it's huge, right? And, and in Eastern uh, states for sure. Uh, and they are, they do a crunch every four meters, and they'll travel to, like, if your audience is from the States, sorry, would they do like 120 miles uh-huh. uh, uh, a week? So they'll be doing about 40,000 crunches every couple weeks. And they do this for years and years and yeah. years. And we don't have an epidemic of disc injuries, of disc herniation. Right? So that's, and then one last thing the case against the flexion, sorry if this is a lot. No, no, it's, no, it's great. They have, they've done a study where they looked at the long term. That's what we need. They said, okay, well, maybe it is an injury, but we have to follow people long term. And I only know of one study. It was look, They looked at cross-country skiers, cyclists. So we have a flexion group, a group that flexes and extends. That's the, that's, sorry, not cyclists, rowers. And then orienteers. So that's the neutral spine group. Okay, so we had a group that didn't flex. And we they followed them for ten years. There was no difference in low back pain after ten years. That 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 to me tells us a ton. It's not the biggest study, but it's the best that we have. And so uh, I tend to think that maybe repeated flexion isn't that bad of a problem because if we also look at the ep- the epidemic of disc herniation, it's not an epidemic. It's maybe two to five percent of the problem, right? It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't explain the disability that we have when it comes to low back pain. So maybe it's a problem for some people, mm-hmm. but it's it. I don't know. And I I would gladly shift positions here because I have shifted positions through the years. I I have no like skin in the game, so to speak here. Um, but that's just my view of the literature. So and it's, and no, even no. bringing it to sort of people who maybe even aren't athletic, right? What about like new moms or even moms with kids under the age of five who are constantly bending over to pick them up, bending or new or new dads, I should say, I should say both, um, who are bending over, bending over continuously every day, all day. Yeah. Right? And and not every new mom or not every new mom or dad has low back pain. No, they, they, they don't. And, and pregnancy and, and isn't even related to more low back pain. It's one of those things. And we, we flex all the time. And to me, 
That's why we have a spine that's segmented like that. It's built for flexion. That's why we have discs. They're not shock absorbers. They're to allow motion. And then we have so many cultures that just hang out in flexion. You know, you do the squat and you sit there all day. And, and we sit too all day. And, and it's actually not related to more low back pain. That is consistent across systematic reviews. Yep. People who sit more are not more likely to have low back pain. It's probably a problem for fitness and health, but it's not a problem for, 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 for pain. And so, you know, we, we, yeah, it hurts. People tend to hurt when they flex more. It's because we tend to flex more than extend. So it's not unusual to have more flexion-related pain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as human beings, we're not up out into extension all, yeah. that, all that much at all during, our, during your day. I mean, yeah, maybe you do like a yoga class or, you know, a, a row class where you're going into a little bit of extension, but that might be only an hour a day. Oh, in rowing? In rowing, yeah. Oh, rowing's amazing. Yeah. You never go on extension. What's that? You're always in flexion. Yeah. It's crazy. We, I just looked at a study of that. We wrote a paper. Oh, I'm Even when you come out of flexion, your, your, bottom, your bottom spine is still in flexion. Oh, yeah, that's true because you're sitting. Yeah. You actually, on the extending part, on the thrust, when you drive back, you post your pelvic tilt there, even though your upper lower spine is extending. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. That's it's true. A, it's such a complicated spinal. Uh, it's so neat. It's row. Well, you know, rowing is the new spinning. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Rowing's okay. the new spinning. Oh, it's all over New York. It's all like rowing classes now. And friends oh, of... Friends Frank of, Underwood? Like Frank Underwood, yeah. Like friends of mine yeah, own, own like this place called Row House. And yeah. I think they now have three of them. And, and, of course, they have a pop-up in the Hamptons for the summer. Um, and packed, packed classes all throughout the day. And it's, I mean, I, I did a whole bunch of their classes. It's a great workout. Um, I know. You look jacked. What's that? I do. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. <laughs> oh, that, maybe that's when you saw me back in February. I've, let, my, I've, let, I've let myself go. Um, but, uh the what's so interesting is i've had patients who said oh i you know blew my back out rowing so you have to be careful you can't go into extension when you go back yeah and so it i i and you're right you're really never going into extension because you're certainly sitting and then as you're pushing back cuz when you push back it's i mean rowing is all legs right supposed to be more legs than it is arms um and so it's it is a fascinating movement yeah i mean th that's a good example where we assume it's the movement pattern that's the injury risk don't go back too far but if they're going back too far it's probably the forces that could be the issue right they're just doing too much too soon if they're going back far they're probably pressing harder yeah so like usually with biomechanics and pain, there's always another explanation. But we get caught up in the dominant theme one. We always go back to our biases, myself included. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think also with rowing, it is a complicated movement. And it does take practice to get that movement down. Because you kind of want to go in a certain sequence. Like, you don't want to start pulling with your arms. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you sort of... 
you kind of push with your legs and then the arms follow when you're pushing out. And then when you're coming back in, the arms kind of go first and the legs follow. At least that's how I was taught. Um, I may be very wrong on that. But, but when you go to these classes, it is kind of fascinating because you see people just all arming it. And so they are just all over the place. Well, people will tell them that their glutes are inhibited. Their glutes, that's, <laughs> well, yeah, they're probably, it's probably not that their glutes are inhibited, it's that their hip flexors are working too much. Yeah, which is impossible. That's, that's <laughs> what's happening. The hip flexors are working too much, which yeah. um, is a nice transition, actually, that takes us into uh, something else I wanted to talk to you about. I saw some really great discussions, actually, uh, that you started on some Facebook threads um, because you're sort of in the midst of writing uh, a blog post about glute activation and that kind of that connection between glute activation and and because you hear this all the time well your glutes aren't activating therefore your hip flexors are picking up all the slack and that's why your back hurts yeah right so what have you yeah, learned in in the and I, I hear that all the time in the fitness world, in the PT world, even at, at conferences. But what have you learned in the process of, of delving into the research and writing this blog, in the midst of writing this blog post? So we, it's funny, like nothing's new. I've, I've had this discussion since 1997. <laughs> since I was like 21. And in 2004, I published a paper on it. I published a paper on the prone leg extension test looking at glute max inhibition. All right, I, I've, been, I've been looking at this forever. So we did an EMG study. And the idea at the time was that the glutes uh, are inhibited when there's a problem. And they'll, when you lift up your leg, uh, it's a problem when the, when the glutes are the last one to turn on. Right? It should be the glutes extending the hip. So we did the study. And, in, and no one had pain or even a history of low back pain. And, and everyone, the glutes were the last one to turn on. And since that time in 2004, there's been at least four papers since then showing the exact same thing, that there's variable patterns, the glutes don't fire. And people say, well, you know, if you have an ankle sprain, then, then it'll affect the glutes. So my wife was a, a participant in that study at the time, not my wife at the time. I recruited her just for her glutes. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and like six months later, she sprained her ankle. So I took her right to the lab. And then we followed, I followed her for eight weeks. And this is published too as a case study. I don't know if it says it's my wife, but that might be like unethical, but I got published anyway. Uh, <laughs> and there's just random changes. You know, the, the, the glutes don't really matter for hip extension. It's like there's not some stereotypical pattern. The glutes are important, but not as important as any other muscle. So the idea is here, everyone says you can't open up a magazine without hearing about the glutes being inhibited. There is actually very little to no research that supports that idea. Uh, it's shocking. There is... Uh, so then where, where does this come from? It came from Yanda. It came from Vladimir Oh, Yanda. yeah, yeah, yeah. It came from the lower cross syndrome, right, which was right. tight hip flexors leads to reciprocal inhibition of the glutes, which is impossible. That's not how reciprocal inhibition works. Just because 
a muscle is tight or has lack of flexibility doesn't mean it's tonically sending some current to go back to the spinal cord. Reciprocal inhibition means a muscle turns on and there's a reflexive inhibition. Just because you lack range of motion doesn't mean that will get activated. And it, it only happens reflexively. You can't actually uh, control it like that. That'd be like if you did a squat. When you do a squat, your quads are active way more than your, your glutes and your hips. And it would be like saying you wouldn't be able to stand up because they're antagonists to each other if reciprocal inhibition worked that way. And it, it doesn't. Anyway, so that's where it all started. And then we just ran with it. And I can name five or six papers that show when there's pain, there's actually more glute activity. And I can give you one paper by Freeman and McGill a few years ago where, if you in, where they showed less glute activity, but you inject like a painful substance into the hip joint. But that's not, that's not what's called, bi, that's not biological fidelity. Having a substance injected into your hip joint isn't what happens in real life. Not so usually. You have, you have to, you know, it depends where you sit, right? You have to, so the, the preponderance of evidence is that the glutes aren't inhibited. So if you, if you look at the systematic reviews in runners and knee pain, the glute max will be more active, if not the same. So will the glute mead. What you might see is a delay in the firing of the glute mead timing. That's it, by 30 milliseconds. Kind of like the VMO, kind of like the transverse. Probably, probably it's meaningless. But you never see the glutes off. And what's crazy is the glutes aren't even the most important hip extender. They're not even the biggest muscle back there. Your adductor magnus, the whole muscle groups of the, of the hamstrings, hamstrings yeah. they have a bigger muscle bulk. And the reference would be Newman. He has a textbook on this. They have a bigger muscle bulk and they have a bigger mechanical advantage. So we love the glutes and there's nothing wrong with a nice firm glute, but it's like it's not a problem. Yet you can't open a magazine without hearing about, about it. Yeah. Well, maybe it is, but we certainly don't have the evidence right now to say it's a problem. And so then how do we as physical therapists or chiropractors, movement professionals, how, what, what do we do with this situation? How do we uh, get the right evidence out there or challenge people accordingly? Because people, this is very ingrained into people. Yeah. And so there's a lot of cognitive dissonance around this. I mean, it's taught at courses. You know, it's taught at, at, in, I, I don't know if it's taught at, at the university level, but it's, I've yeah, certainly it's, seen it at, at continuing education courses. So It's at the university level. Uh, I mean, then you have to say, well, why does it matter? Because <laughs> what people end up doing is doing strength training for the glutes anyway. Uh, when you have knee pain or hip pain, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's we have pragmatic research that sure. that's a good thing to do. It just doesn't do what we think it does, which ends up simplifying it. So if you have knee pain, you probably want to strength train the hips. It's not going to change your kinematics. It probably won't change the activation of your glutes, uh, but that's okay. Uh, but it might help some people get out of pain. So again, it's just. It's not that big of a deal, but to me it is because then we just set people up with this idea of fragility. Oh, my glutes aren't turning on. I'm all weak. I have to engage my glutes. I have to engage my core. I have to turn on my transverse abdominis. And that, that's just this fragilistic thinking that right. and who can, disappoints me. How can you – and that's the thing that I think bothers me as well is 
is the patient is constantly thinking that there's, boy, there must be something really wrong with me if my glutes can't even activate. Yeah. Right? And then, and then you also have this, who, who can think about turning all this stuff on? They, they do turn on. They'll, they'll turn but on with they'll, the challenge. But, but like, it's not like, like if you're doing an exercise, are you telling your, your client or your patient to be like, okay, I want you to think about activating the glute, then I want you to think about activating your transverse, and I want you to go back to your glute, and then I want you to think like, how can you do all that and walk around? No, it's, it's horrible stuff. And the, and the, the, the good coaches who would – who would even uh, believe in the glute inhibition idea, they wouldn't have you do that either. They would get you to do better training and different focus, external focus to, to train the glutes. And that still might help with performance. Like I'm not saying don't train the glutes. It's still good to do glute exercise. But it's just this whole idea that you can even identify an inhibited glute, you know, uh, hasn't been done. You know, and, and it's probably not a big deal. And I don't know why you would put the glutes on a pedestal over anything else. Like, in distance running, people think the glutes are important. In fact, the glutes hardly work at all during distance running. That's right. That's right. Sprinting. Sprinting. That's different. why they have butts. Sprinters yeah. have big butts. Distance runners have big hamstrings. Yeah. Because the body knows what's important. Like you don't see a lot of butt shelves in distance runners, but you see this dangling hamstring when they do like a uh, lying on their back with their legs up. You know, so yeah, 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 the, yeah, that's true. The, yeah, you, you, you can see it. So it's just just funny that we get caught up in these themes and they just they just run amok. Right. So so kind of to summarize is still good to strengthen the glutes. Still strengthen good, the whole lower body. Good to strengthen. Bad to tell a person that they're not activating, they're not working because, like you said, it can kind of get into this fragilistic thinking, and then the person's walking around thinking they're broken or something's wrong with them. Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. yeah, good, good to train it, but just no uh, need to put them uh, over anything else. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I look forward. When is that blog post going to be? Out? I don't even know when this. Back is. off! Give me a break. When I'm is this blog post going to be out? I don't know. Maybe well, this week. Oh, oh, all right. Well then. Next week. So for people who are listening to this, make sure you go back and read Greg's blog post because this will probably come out after that blog post comes out. Um, now, you know, we were talking about training and, and that it is important to strength train and it is important to train lower body, upper body. What are your thoughts on, and I've asked a couple of other people this question as well, what are your thoughts on the quote-unquote functional training? Um, yeah. You know, it's, no, I... I would love uh, to know your opinion on that. So I was a strength coach first. You know, I was like a a, a strength coach for, there's a university in Waterloo when I was my master's and and, uh, that was my background in exercise physiology and I was all about trying to make it functional. And to me, I think what people meant by functional, because we have to define it, is that what they really mean is that it's kinematically, so how the person moves looks similar to the goal task. That's what they mean by, by functional. And I was really lucky because my undergrad was with a guy named Digby Sale, who is actually the father of specificity. That was all his, a lot of his research was that if you want to do a leg press and if your test is the leg press, you should go train the leg press in the, in the, in the specific angles that you're going to test at. Because if you train at all the other angles, 
you won't do as well at those specific angles. That, that's what was always meant by specificity, and that's what was meant by being functional. The problem with it is, is it's not that important. Like you, you can have functional carryover, right? So what I mean is a clamshell exercise, so you lie on your side and you just lift your knee up, that can actually be a functional exercise if your goal is to stress the glute med or the glute min and the deep hip rotators because you think that there's a tendinopathy, like a glute med tendinopathy. It's a, it's a perfectly legitimate one. Or if someone has trouble doing it, it's now a functional exercise because you're targeting those muscles and that will carry over. Or um, it's amazing, but Brett Contreras talks a lot about this. If you take uh, a group of women who are a little bit older and they do just leg extension exercises, right? That's not functional. No one would ever call that functional, right? That, that, that's just something on a bench. They will actually improve their timed up and go, like how fast they can walk. It'll improve their squats times. It'll improve everything. So the, you don't have to be kinematically specific. We have this, this carryover effect, you know, so we have to be careful with, 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 with functional. Yeah, you should do some stuff, that looks like your goal activity, kinematic-wise, but there's lots of other ways to define function. It could be the specific muscle, it could be the speed of contraction, it could be the context, like it's similar to the context and the psychological demand. Those would all be other functional ways to, to train. Even imaging, sure. imagine motion. Yeah, yeah all that absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, does, does, that, does that make sense? Or? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think the, the thing that, comes to mind a lot when you hear sort of functional movements. It's like you throw somebody on a BOSU or you throw them on sort of uneven surface or they've got bands attached to every appendage and they're, you know, kind of doing these kind of crazy movements. Yeah. And, and I, you know what, I thought that debate died 10 years ago. I'm so surprised that that keeps coming up because yeah. I used to pub a lot of my, half of my publications were on unstable surfaces and the EMG. And we were like, this is not any better than doing it on the ground. You know, it's like balance training on a wobble board. That will make you balance train better on a, a wobble board, but it won't transfer over to uh, skating or jumping in the park. You know, that, 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 that's the issue with all that stuff. Those, those functional things aren't that functional. Only if your function is to be on the wobble board. Right. Right. They'll still train the muscles. So you'll have that type of carryover. But it won't be that that specific sometimes. Right. So it's yeah. A effect, which is good, but the functional, kinematically specific, won't be so good. Right. Yeah. Like I could see. You know, I used to. Uh, well, I'm in New York City, so you know, you see a lot of different performers, and so I had a guy who was a clown, who performed at the opera, the Met Opera, and things like that, and so he was also a stilt walker. So we didn't have stilts, but, you know, stilts aren't the most stable yeah. surface in the world. So for him, putting him on unstable surfaces was actually functional, yeah, truly functional for him because he was a clown and a stilt walker. So we would have him on there and, like, have him juggle because that's what he had to do. Same thing. I used to work at the Lion King. It was the same idea. You know, it's it's a different type, type of training. Um for a very, very specific activity. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think a lot of times when, when 
people hear functional, they just think throw in some crazy thing and all of a sudden it's functional when in fact, I don't think that's the case. No. You know, that's, that's it. And I, I love getting people's take on that because it's, it's still around. Like you see these crazy YouTube videos and, and people think that that's what they should be doing in order to improve X, Y, and Z of what they have to do. Yeah. And what's neat is that, you could do the stuff you did with that clown and he would actually probably benefit if you gave him deadlifts and heavy squats and one-legged squats and just general stuff as well. Like you'd still get a general carryover. That's the cool thing. It's like strength training, heavy, heavy loads will help a marathon runner. That is not at all, doesn't seem related at all, but there's still a carryover and we don't really know why. I mean, there's, there's good researchers figuring that out, but it, it's certainly not cut and dry. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I did a marathon a number of years ago, and the longest run I did, I didn't really train, um, but <laughs> the longest run I did pre-marathon was a half marathon. Oh, you're just stupid then. <laughs> but what I was doing was I was doing a lot of like um, heavy lifting, deadlifts, squats, lunges, jumping, a lot of plyometric work. Yeah, good. So I ran that whole marathon. And I, I met my You're friends like a at CrossFitter. Life. What's that? You're like a CrossFitter. I've never done CrossFit. That's their philosophy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I, um, but I, I, like I saw my friends at mile 20. I'm like, could you believe I just ran 20 miles? And they're like, no, people look like they're <laughs> dying. And I'm like, hey, guys, what's happening? You didn't run hard enough then. I, you know, I don't think that's the case. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I don't know. It was, I finished with a respectable time. Okay. For a first-time marathon for someone who never trained and also stopped and chatted with their friends for 20 minutes, which was a mistake. Um, but I, if I didn't stop and chat, I would have finished in under four. Okay, good. Yeah, and I literally ran no more than 13 miles as my long run. <laughs> I'm not advocating this for people, um, but I did do a lot of, of no, that's awesome. biometric squats and jumps, so I don't know. Worked, no, that's good. Worked for me. And it, it, no, it'll work for a lot of people. And I just, you know, training for a marathon's like hard. I know, I'm doing it. <laughs> are you doing it? When are you running a marathon? Chicago, October 9th. Nice. That's the one I ran. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. See, so you don't have to run longer than 13 miles. <laughs> I think I did that this morning. You did? Good for you. No, no. 13K. Um, oh, 13K. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so just do like squats and plyometrics. <laughs> Screw it. You'll be fine. You seem to be in pretty good shape. I don't know. I, I, I I'm trying to run 310. <laughs> you're trying to run 310? It won't cut it just to do squats and plyometrics. No, probably not. Nope. You're a much more serious runner. I just did. I was like one and done. I did one marathon. I'm like, that's it. No more for me. Yeah, they suck. Yeah, it's not fun. No. Like up to mile 20, 22, it was fun. And then after that, it, it was not fun anymore. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, before, before we get going, um, I just wanted to ask you, what, what classes do you have coming up? Where are you going to be? Where can people find you? Oh, that's coming up. Um, lots. Uh, so my website's greglayman.ca. That's that's the easiest. 
And then I think uh, I'm in like Chile in July and then Melbourne, Australia. And then uh, I'm in the UK. I'm back in London in the fall and uh, Chicago, Denver. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even Goodness. know. Goodness. Hopefully New York City. <laughs> In 2017? Yeah, New York City, 2017. Wow. Yeah. Well, I try to do more in the States. I don't go to the States enough, and I, I really like the States, so it's yeah, fun. Yeah, so I don't Chicago, care. you're at Sandy and Sarah's? In December. In December. No, wait. No, I don't even know. I think December. Cool. Oh, I'm in Denver in December. Oh, that'll be snowy. Um, I can't remember when I'm in Chicago. Sorry. That's no, okay. People can look it up. So it's greglayman.ca. Mm-hmm. And before we get off, any final sort of thoughts you want to leave people with after our discussion today? Oh, uh, I, no, I, I I really believe that it's okay to be simple. You know, that we don't really need the complexity that we, we try to do, especially in the biomechanics. And, the, and the, the big point of that is if you simplify your biomechanics, your physical interventions, and it can allow you to develop your skills in the other areas, the psychosocial stuff. Like to start taking more classes outside of our um, typical training. You know, psychologists, social workers, that type of stuff. That, that, that's where I think we can, we can build our, our skill set. You know, it, we can keep the – there's not a better manipulation or there's not, a, there's not that special – exercise technique that you need to learn that stuff's just just fun but it's not necessary for patients in pain yeah I agree and I think that's where I'm going to plug the San Diego Pain Summit but I think that's where the San Diego Pain Summit really uh, shines is that you have different um, presenters from all different genres all centered around kind of translating that pain literature into the real world um, and I think that's what was very good about it this past year where you spoke um, and, and even the year before. So if people want to check that out, they can check out the San Diego Pain Summit as well. Okay, I don't know, okay. What do you think? Sure. You, you were there. Um, I thought it was good. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on. And again, I apologize for my lack of voice. Um, I do not normally sound, I sound like I should be, I don't, I don't even know. Um, but, uh, thank you, Greg, for, for taking the time out and coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Great. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.